Okay, got it. Ready? <clears throat> You're listening to Paul Elmore. Paul Elmore. <laughs> Shh. Alrighty. How many of you have ever been fired? Fired from a job? Ooh, ooh, ooh. In general, immediate perception, how many of you would, um, would you say that being fired typically falls into the good category initially or the bad category initially? Bad. It's kind of a general uh, assessment that we make about it. Being fired typically sucks, and it's not very fun, and it hurts, and it creates all sorts of problems. I... I've been fired twice in my life. The first time was from a job, um, from a boss that I never met once in person in my life. It was a very short job, um, which says something to the level of training I received if I never actually met him in person. Um, And after a very short time, it was communicated to me that I wasn't doing it satisfactorily enough, and so he let me go. That one didn't hurt too bad. That one, I, I was pretty aware that I wasn't the best fit. I didn't have a lot of investment in it. It was a short-term gig just to get me through a season. It did what it needed to do, and I was glad to be done, especially because what I was doing was cleaning toilets at an oil refinery. So that's not a very glorious job. So when you get fired from that one, it's actually a thumbs up, big time. Really easy. Um, The second time I got fired was um, quite a bit more painful because the job I got fired from was a job that I had wanted for years and years and years. Um, I had interviewed and applied at many places and in all the places I had interviewed before, in fact seven times before, it came down to me and one other candidate in the job. And seven times the other guy got the job. I was starting to get bummed. I was, I was frustrated. I was having to clean toilets, you know, as, just to get, make ends meet. Um, finally, finally, I land the job. I get hired, and I, I am doing the job which I am looking forward to doing for years and years and years. And I jump into it with, with both feet. I go all gusto, and I, I try to do my best, and I try to... I try to make an impact and all these amazing things. And after about three months, it became very apparent that I still was not adequately trained and I, appropriately so, was fired. In fact, it was probably the right thing to do because I was not an asset to the company, I was a, a liability. It's taken me a long time to be able to get to that place to say that because at first when I got fired, it was devastating. In fact, I can remember my friend Bill calling me up. Actually, I called him and said, Bill, I've just been fired. He goes, that sucks. And we kind of processed it for a short time. And then his, his words as we were hanging up on the phone, he just says, Paul, survive. I can remember those words. He doesn't remember saying those words to me. I've asked him. He doesn't ever remember saying those things to me. But those words to me were unbelievably important. He didn't say, you'll get over it. He didn't say, you know, it's all for the better and, you know, those blankety blanks, you know, they don't know what they're missing. He didn't try to do any of that. He knew I was hurting. He knew I was in pain. He knew I was profoundly disappointed. And he goes, Paul, just survive. And that was refreshing. That was just um, freeing. The wisdom that he had to say that was, gave me a lot of freedom to just hurt for a season. 
And I hurt for a long season. I, my ego was bruised from that for a long time. Um, you've all heard the phrase, hindsight's twenty twenty, right? It's an actually pretty good platitude because it's actually pretty accurate because as you get further away from something that is painful, as you get away further away from something that is unpleasant, you start to change perspective. You start to have a different understanding of the situation, and it actually changes your emotional attachment to it, which is a strange concept, because events themselves are benign. Events aren't good or bad. It's a weird concept, okay? Events themselves aren't good or bad. It's the value that we ascribe to it. And so being able to have an accurate perception of things is going to help us weather our failures, our mistakes, our failings, and the failures, mistakes, and failings of others around us. It's a perception. It's the meaning that we ascribe to those situations. Perception is an essential part of failure, because perception is ascribing a value. Right after I got fired, I ascribed the negative value to the experience. This sucks. 18 years later, has it been that long? Somewhere around there. Yeah, man, 15 years later, I can ascribe a different value to it and I can say it was the right thing to do. I'm actually thankful for the experience which is an odd thing to say as well because the experience that at one time was just so painful, I can now genuinely, honestly, gratefully say I am thankful I went through it and I'm glad that I let it shape who I am and how I view the world. Perception is hugely important. There is one, there is, there is one, what's the word I want to use? Value? No, that doesn't sound right. Uh, attitude, approach, paradigm. Perception. There is one paradigm, I'm going to go with that, that people typically will fall into as a general human population. And that is the concept of luck. Okay? A lot of people say, they're just lucky. They have all these good things that happen to them, or this person is unlucky. And they, you know, they get fired, their car gets hit, their house gets broken into, and their dog runs away. They must, that, man, that person is really, really unlucky, right? And so we always have this kind of, this wrestling with fate, shall we say? Is it my control? Is it someone else's control? I don't know, but there's this thing called luck. And a lot of us would go, I'd really like to be lucky, but I don't actually think I am very lucky. So let's ask a quick question. How many of you think you are actually lucky? You have more good things happen to you than dis disproportionately lucky. We've got like two, four. All right, so we got like, the okay, unlucky. How many of you think that you are unlucky? How many of you don't know? How many of you haven't ever thought about this and you're open to kind of rolling with whatever? All right. Well... After tonight, we'll see if you want to, which category you want to fall into, because I actually think you get to choose. Wouldn't that be nice? By the way, I would choose lucky. I wouldn't choose unlucky. That tends to not work out so good. Um, there's a guy who did a luck study called Wiseman. Actually, a pretty convenient name. 
if he's going to do a study on luck. Um, he actually did a study over 10 years on people who considered themselves lucky and people who considered themselves unlucky. And um, he followed 400 people for 10 years, um, and he did all sorts of tests. In one study, he asked subjects to look through a newspaper and count the number of photographs inside the entire newspaper. Not a very difficult task, right? Sit down, here's a paper, count the number of photographs, page after page after page. Here's what he found out. The people who labeled themselves as generally unlucky took about two minutes to complete the task. Not bad, big paper. They counted all the pictures. The people who considered themselves generally lucky took an average of a few seconds. Isn't that strange? Why? What's the difference? And here's the difference. Wiseman had placed a block of text printed in giant bold letters on the second page of the newspaper that read, stop counting. There are 43 photographs in this newspaper. <laughs> Deeper inside, he placed a second block of text just as big that read, stop counting. Tell the experimenter you have seen this and win $250. The people who viewed themselves as unlucky missed both. Doesn't that stink? And the people who viewed themselves as lucky only got to page two. I can remember in fifth grade, I hated my fifth grade teacher. I can't even remember her name right now, but I hated her. Not a dislike. I really hated her. And I can remember she did a test once where I like refuge. I get to work through my stuff. Thank you very much. Do you have a group for childhood school trauma? That would be a good one. Um, she gave a test once, and like every test in fifth grade, on the top of the sheet it said, read all the instructions before, before um, uh, starting this test, whatever, blah, 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 or read all the questions or something like that. And if you followed that one line of text, you'd go to the very bottom, and the last question says, don't do any of the questions, come up and get a piece of candy or whatever. And so every person... Every person took, you know, 10, 15 minutes, and as soon as they get to the last question, you get hear groans from all over, pop up all around, going, oh, shoot, dang. Feeling tricked. I can remember feeling tricked. I can imagine that these unlucky people felt really tricked, because 250 is a lot worse than a candy bar. Why? Why do lucky people see the block of text and unlucky people don't? Any guesses? Expectations. Okay. What else? They're looking for it. Were they looking for a block of text or were they looking for photos? Don't know. Yep. They trust what they see. What do you mean? Oh, so they can actually trust what they're reading and they're not afraid of being tricked. So if someone's afraid I'm getting tricked by this or I'm getting worked in the system somehow, they tend to hunker down. Any other theories? They're more relaxed or they're not tunnel visioned in so many areas. Well done. If I had a candy bar, I'd give you one, because that, again, 
that is actually really close. Unlucky people are incredibly narrowly focused. They only keep their eyes on one particular task or one particular goal. And they actually have tunnel vision. They have a difficult time seeing outside of the parameters of the specific rules or expectations that are placed on them. People who are narrowly focused tend to view themselves as unlucky. They crave security and tend to be more anxious. This is the security piece again. I'm getting tricked. If I'm getting tricked, my security is being compromised in some way, and that is just bad news. And so people who need to feel secure, they need to know um, the predictability of life. They get worried when things aren't kind of structured. They become anxious. That's why they need kind of closer walls. They're, they need to be a little bit um, hemmed in a little bit. They remain fixated on controlling the situation and seeking a specific goal. Unlucky people tend to be more controlling in their lives. They need that control for that security again. They think. That's a, I'll, I'll throw that caveat in there. They think that the control is going to make them feel safer, right? And they miss out on the other situations that tend to float by. There's all sorts of amazing situations out there, but because I got I to gotta stay right here, I got to stay right here, I got to stay right here, I can't, I can't broaden my perception a little bit. Those are the unlucky people. Lucky people, they tend to go through life in the exact opposite. They're constantly changing routines and seek out new experiences. They like novelty. They are open to experiences that are, that are new, that are not as predictable. They place themselves in situations where anything can happen. For someone who doesn't trust themselves, that word right there, that last sentence, anything can happen, is like a death sentence. Oh my gosh, anything can happen? That means <gasps> bad things could happen. Bad things could happen. And I want to limit the possibility of that in any way possible. Because if bad things happen, I'm not sure I can survive. I'm not sure I can make it. So they want to reduce that possibility. They try more things, here we go, this is why we're doing this class, and, what's that word? Fail more often. This is the bad news of the week, okay? Well, Lucky people. Lucky people actually don't need predictability. Lucky people are open to new experiences. Lucky people try more things and fail more often. Yes. Yep. And they understand that when they fail, they shrug it off and try something else. Which is actually important to realize because they aren't lucky. And people aren't unlucky. It's a misnomer. It doesn't exist. It's not this strange fate. It isn't these, these, these situations out of your control. It isn't some sort of power or energy or anything else like that. It's actually an approach to life. And you can actually learn how to get lucky. Yeah. <laughs> I'm moving on. 
they realize that occasionally things work out. We could have fun with that all night long, but we're not. Oh, man. It's okay. Um, I actually didn't plan that one. Sorry about that. Shoot. Occasionally things work out. That's lucky people. Ah. <coughs> Important quote here. Unlucky people miss chance opportunities because they are, are, they are too focused on looking for something else. <clears throat> they go to parties intent on finding their perfect partner and so miss opportunities to make good friends. They look through newspapers determined to find certain types of job and as a result miss other types of jobs. Lucky people are more relaxed and open and therefore see what is there rather than just what they are looking for. What an idea. This is why I ask you when you come here to rest, to become present, to see if you can get into a state of mind that is receptive because there's stuff going to happen here that you might not expect happen. You might come saying, I want this answer to one question. And my hope is, because you tend to be in a more open state, you might get answers to lots of other questions that you didn't even know you were asking. There's a method to the madness here. I like it when you can become present, when you can be open to an experience and say, hey, this is kind of new. I like it. It's not that simple. Because there's, I have this friend. Uh-huh, we'll talk about somebody else, good. Right. <laughs> the person who should be here tonight. Right, they yes. really should. I invited them, they said no. They said no. And this person that I know. Yes. May sometimes put themselves in situations that can't be controlled because they already believe they're going to fail in a situation that can't be. They put themselves in a situation believing they're going to fail. Still, they, because they believe they are going to fail, they put themselves into unpredictable situations because it doesn't matter what happened. But I, right. By the way, there's not, they're not going to succeed necessarily. Got it's it. It's more of a rather than assign yourself failure, you assign yourself not succeeding. So I'm not going to be able to, um, because I'm unlucky, I'm not going to like have this situation be profitable to me, so yeah. I will just do whatever the hell I want yep. because the end result will be the same. Yep. Uh, um, I <laughs> <laughs> yeah, her friend's going to be really hurt. <laughs> Ask me that question in about 45 minutes when we get to something called confirmation bias. Sound fair, all right? Can I put you on hold? Yeah, I already know what confirmation bias is. All right. So you already know what confirmation bias is. So we'll, um, for those who don't know what confirmation bias, you'll find out. But we're going we're gonna to come back to that question because it's a good question. The luck experiment. Is this microphone on? They say it's going to work. So let's see what happens if I watch this video. And then we're going to see if we can do a little experiment ourselves. All right? I'm going to show you something now which is impossible in exactly the same way and that is to toss a coin fairly ten times in a row and have it come up heads every time. Now we film this under control conditions with multiple cameras that won't cut away and it's a genuine coin with heads on one side and tails on the other but I want you to watch this and try and work out how it can be possible because the key to understanding this 
is the key to understanding the system. <clears throat> Ten heads in a row. Watch. One. That's heads. Two. That's heads. Three. Heads. Heads. That is four. Heads. Five. Six. One more to go, and I'll stop. Seven. Three more. Eight. Nine heads. Last one. Ten heads in a row. Thank you very much indeed. I'll show you later on exactly how that's possible. Ten heads, ten in a row. <laughs> that's impossible, and yet you just watched it done. So if you have seen this video before, hold your tongue for a second. Don't give us away. I can do it. I can do it. I actually have quarters. So, here's what I need, okay? I need four people who are willing to be the coin flippers. Anyone feel, all right, one, two, thank you very much. Two more, come on up. And I need four more people who are going to, oh, I need one more, man, bail that on me. All right, perfect, here you go. I need four more people who are gonna be the moderators, okay? So, I'm not gonna watch them, so, Pick someone that you want to be your judge. You want to make sure that they keep you honest. Pick somebody. Pick somebody. Okay? <laughs> You're going to pick someone from the very back? <laughs> All right. What we're going to do is exact same experiment. Ten times, ten in a row, ten heads. As soon as you hit a tail, you have to stop. Okay? I can do this. I can do this. Legitimate coin. Take a look at it. Is there heads and tails on both sides? It's not trick coins, right? Everything looks good. Perfect. All right. When you're ready, begin. And the caller gets to say whatever, whether it's a head or tail. So go ahead and start flipping. We'll see what happens. Yeah, just throw it on the floor. Okay. Done. Done. Tails. Thank you for playing. Okay. Don't. No. Stay here. Stay here. Stay here. God. I didn't expect that. That's a bummer. <laughs> you must not be doing it right, see? <laughs> Try again. Ready, go. Someone's got to get heads. At least one. Four tails. 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 Okay. Three are out of here. Thank you very much. <laughs> Give me my quarters back. We got one who's going for the record. Okay. You just saw him do it. I can do it. These guys can't. They suck. Okay? Let's see if we can get two in a row. Heads? All right. Keep going. 
Oh, they can only get twice? twice. Try it one more time. I, I mean, warm up the quarter or something, rub on it, breathe on it. Heads, okay, there's one. I can do this. Okay, so there's two. Okay, you're warming up. Oh, you can't even flip the coin. Try it again, that one doesn't count. Heads, okay, we've got three. I can do 10. Okay, that's four. Nice. Okay, he's got five. He can do it too, it looks like. Oh, no, he can't. Thank you very much for playing. It's been nice to have you. He can do five, so he's only half as good as I am. I can do, you want to see me do 10? You want to know the trick? I'm not going to tell you the trick. No. I'm a lucky person. These guys are really unlucky, and you got lucky just because I gave you another chance, because originally you're really unlucky. If that's how we view the world, if this is how we are trying to determine our success or failures, depending upon, you know, heads or tails, let's actually see how it works. Ten heads in a row. Watch. To predict a run of 10 heads in a row and then make it happen is hugely unlikely. The chance of it happening is about one in a thousand. However, if you flip a coin thousands of times and record the results, somewhere along that line of heads and tails, a line of 10 heads is actually very likely to appear. Okay, 10 heads in a row. That's one. To work out the system, you need to understand that we can only know what comes from our own limited experience. And our experience can often be very far from the truth. I can't see the bowl anymore. Here we go. Ten. <laughs> what you saw was the final minute of what was an excruciatingly long day. We filmed for over nine hours until eventually a clear run of heads appeared. Nine heads. Last one. The impossible became inevitable. Ten. Ten heads in a row. Thank you very much indeed. Do you believe me when I tell you that I can do it? Yes. Can you do it? Yes. Do you got nine hours? Nine stinking hours of flipping a coin for one video. That's dedication. I'm not that dedicated. But it is... Fascinating, isn't it? Because when we're given limited information, we start to believe things which are profoundly inaccurate. Profoundly inaccurate. But we can take that information and start to make assumptions about ourselves which are tremendously flawed. Happens over and over and over again. This is actually called survivorship bias. Beware advice from the successful. Survivorship bias is looking only at the success as a looking at the success as a point of comparison. Looking at the successes. A little typo there. Looking only at the successes as a point of comparison rather than the whole gamut, the whole picture of things. Um, Starbucks became incredibly f successful as a company but we don't actually know why. 
And there have been books and books and books written and business, business advice and leadership styles and programs and blah, 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 all out of this one story of Starbucks being successful. But we don't actually have the, 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 the ability to go back in time and start 20 exact same Starbucks and run them in different ways to see what actually made it work and what, what didn't. We only have one thing to compare to. And when we only compare ourselves to the successful people, we oftentimes end up in, with incredibly flawed information. This is, the, this is the danger of comparison. This is the danger of saying, I'm a failure and you're a success. In fact, if you were the only person on the planet, could you fail? Think about it for a second. If you're the only person on the planet, could you fail? What do you think? Yes, no? Yeah. <laughs> Say again? It's based upon your perception. And what do you compare your perception to? There's nobody else to compare it to. So whatever you do, again, again, please take away the concept of there being absolutes from a God and creator who says this and this and this guy. This is, this is just a little theoretical puzzle here, but if you're the only person on the planet and you have nobody to compare yourself to, can you do anything wrong? Yes. Really? You, you, could die. you could die if you didn't feed yourself adequately. Or Why is that wrong? Well, then you wouldn't survive. Who says you have to live to a certain age? Well... <laughs> because, because we only determine healthy lives healthy living based upon the kind of general uh, age of, of the general population, right? Because if you go back in time, what was the, the average lifespan of most males in, you know, a thousand years ago? Yeah, 31, 32, maybe. So it's, it's always a comparison. It, it might take you a minute to get your head wrapped around that. Failure only comes because of comparison. Because we... we create some sort of thing that says this is success and this is failure. Success bias always, always gets in the way. They actually um, came up with this concept because there was a guy by the name of Wald. Wald. W-A-L-D. He was a mathematician and he was asked to examine um, bombers that came back from bombing missions and, and to see how they could better armor and protect these airplanes. And so these, these planes would come back, and the generals and the majors and everyone would come back and look at these planes, and the wings are all shot full of holes and everything. And so everyone started to say, well, here's, here's where the, all the holes got shot in it. We need to protect those areas. And Wald actually was the only guy in the whole place who says, absolutely no. We need to do the exact opposite. Because what we know is these planes can still fly with holes in them at those points. Those aren't critical points. We need to actually armor the places that don't have the holes in it because apparently, if you get shot there, we're assuming you don't come back. Make sense? You have to look at the failures to determine how to make something safer, to make it, make it more successful. You can't look at the ones that show up and say, oh, that's what they did. We're gonna shoot holes in ourselves in the same way and then we'll be successful too. That metaphor mixed. That doesn't work. Um, <laughs> survivor bias 
flash freezes your brain into a state of ignorance. Powerful statement. It says, these people are successful. I got it. That is now my definition of success. Focuses that, that, that target again. And now you actually start to approach life in the way an unlucky person starts to approach it. Right? This is successful. This is not successful. I got to do it this way. I got to... I can't believe I'm going to tell you this. I probably shouldn't. Oh, man. Um, I'm a huge Star Trek fan. I like Star Trek. I like the old stuff, the new stuff, the really new stuff, the bad 90s stuff, okay, Picard and all that stuff. I actually have a book. <laughs> the leadership styles of Jean-Luc Picard. Okay, it's an actual book on my bookshelf. If you ever show up in my office, I'll show it to you. It's a, it's a, it's a good book. It's a, it's, a, it's a good read. I like it. But again, all these leadership books, all these programs, most weight loss things, do you think they're going to get up there and say, here's 15 people. They were on our program for six months and didn't lose a pound. Join us. They don't do that, do they? They only bring out the successes. And I'm curious what the statistics are. How many successful people versus how many people who didn't make it or didn't make it as far as they wanted to. But we always buy the story. I want what they have. Survivorship bias makes you believe that success is more common than it truly is. This is one of the biggest lies, especially in America. If you just think hard enough, if you just try hard enough, you can be a success. Well, eventually. But you're going to go through years and years of not so much. But then they create TV shows which try to sell you an entirely different storyline. We're going to start this thing called American Idol. If you think you can sing, show up. And within 12 weeks, you can be a success and a rock star. Right? It's a fairy tale. It's a fairy tale. That's not how most singers make it. Um, <laughs> do any singers make it? Yeah, I'll let you answer that question. Uh, the Beatles, were they successful? <laughs> yeah. No, not for the first three or four years. What did they do for the first three or four or ten years? They played in uh, Hamburg for old sailor drunks. Where? Covered, covered. In Germany. But where? What, what establishment? Bars. Nope. A, a club for adolescents. No, they might have done that too. They played thousands and thousands and thousands of sets in a strip joint. They got good in a place that nobody saw them. And you only see them after they come off the plane with their floppy hairdos and they're incredibly popular. But we don't see all of the work behind the scenes. But we believe, oh, look at that. They can do it. I should too. Success is not as common. Survivorship bias helps you leap to the conclusion that is also must be easier to obtain. If they can get it so easy, I should too. And success is not actually that easy to obtain. Struggle, that's really easy to obtain. That's a guarantee. <laughs> success, maybe not. 
Survivorship bias helps you develop a completely inaccurate assessment of reality. Assessment. Evaluation. It says, wait a second, this is how it should be? Nope, you got it wrong. <sighs> Survivorship bias grants the tiny number of survivors the privilege of representing the large group. Out of all of you, we're going to take one of you, and you get to speak to the rest of the world about this place. And they're going to assume that your story is the exact same story that everyone else has had here. Who should we pick? Don't raise your hands. Okay. It's a rhetorical question. But who should we pick to represent refuge to the rest of the world? It's such a profoundly unfair thing to do, isn't it? Because you've got your story, and I've got mine, and you've got yours, and we don't have the same stories. Which is not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing at all. Darren Brown, the guy that watched the videos there, we can only know what comes from our own limited experiences, and our experiences can be very far from the truth. He kept referring to the system. It's actually a really neat kind of hour-long program because he talks about, well, one of the, one of the things that is um, kind of the holy grail of, of gambling is a system to win at um, horse racing. How do you pick the winners? How do you, how do you figure out um, who the winner is going to be? And there's a system to doing that. And he, by video, documents one person who picks the same winning horse seven horses in a row. And he can tout her as saying, I have a system that makes this, makes this, you know, prove, see, she's won seven times and you can too. But then he totally debunks it because he goes back and he, what he does is he says, when we started this video series, we actually started off with 40 people. And out of those 40 people, there's just going to be a percentage of people who win and lose, all the losers we got rid of. And then we followed those people. And out of those people, there's always going to be a percentage of people who win. And we're only going to follow those winners, get rid of those people. And did it seven times, seven times, until they came down to one person who just coincidentally picked the winning horse all seven times. But they can say, see, look, we have it figured out. He totally debunks it. It was actually really, really fun to watch. And a little convicting. Because I don't have an hour. And you guys, I mean... YouTube. Come to Imago and watch YouTube. That's something wrong with that. Um, our own limited experiences. Back to the lucky and unlucky. When we have very few limited experiences, by just sheer chance, we fail a lot. And so if you take that and say, see, I haven't been successful. I am an unlucky person. And now I'm going to predict my future based upon that. I'm depressed. I have I got nowhere to go with that. Versus the person who says, that's just these limited experiences so far. Let's just keep doing something else. And eventually something good's gonna happen. I'm gonna be open to it. And they find out, yep, it just happens. It just happens. And now you can latch onto that. Chance plays a lot into this. Questions or thoughts, pushback. Anyone wanna? Yes, please. 
Yeah. So you kind of break, um, it's something you can learn, you're saying, but isn't there, isn't, aren't people sort of born maybe more anxious? Or, I mean, isn't there sort of like a personality that's just more from birth, just more open to experience than others that are? Yeah, aren't there people who are born more open to experience than others, kind of based on their genetic or personality makeup, right? Yeah. Um, the answer is yes, absolutely. Just like there are people who are born with more athletic ability and people who just are born with more cognitive or, or, or thinking ability. We all have a, a variety of, of skill sets that we kind of lean one towards the other. But that's about learning how to become our best us and not trying to be some, something else. Again, the movie Rudy, you guys like the movie Rudy? It's one of the worst movies out there. <laughs> Sorry. Because you got a guy who's this big wanting to play football. He's genetically not going to make it. He's just, he's never going to succeed. And it tells you the story that if you just think hard and you just work hard and you try to do something, if you just want it bad enough, then you get to make one play in one football game and they'll make a movie out of you. Woohoo! I'm not, I'm not so sure that that's a great lesson. I'm sorry. It's, it has really good soundtrack. I like the music. I, I like... Samwise Gamgee's as, as Rudy, but it doesn't. I think it's wiser to say, I understand how I am built, how I am wired, and I'm, gonna, I'm going to be the best that that I can be. And so there are people who are more prone to anxiety, so they probably shouldn't be in the stock market or race car drivers. They just probably shouldn't do it. But they can be other things. They can, there's a lot of other things that just, in fact, there's a fantastic book out there right now. Um, I've been doing a lot of work in it. It's called The Highly Sensitive Person. Um, A-R-O-N, Aaron, I don't, Aaron, I don't have, Aaron. Fantastic book. It's about people who are just, I, 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 I talk about like their volume is turned up just a little bit more. So as they sit in a room, sound actually is just a little bit more painful for them or temperature or smell or even emotional discomfort. Um, they're more prone to that anxiety or the depression piece. They just, they, they, they don't have as much resilience built up, whether that's genetic or experiential. Um, and, it's, and if you find yourself constantly having to adjust your world because things just tend to be a little bit more painful, a little bit harder. Fantastic book. It, it kind of normalizes a lot of the stuff you might be wrestling with. I'm probably going to do some stuff around it later on just because it's got some fantastic concepts in it. And it's instead of diagnosing someone with some sort of mental illness out of the DSM, I think this actually fits them better a little bit. You don't have to give them a, a mental illness. Um, Again, unless you want to treat it and you want to use insurance and you have to give them a mental illness, but um, they just are just a highly sensitive person. That's okay. And again, we can grow in that, but they're probably not going to be as resilient as Dale Earnhardt Jr. And he sees he's going around a track at 270 miles an hour. He's just built a little different. So, other question? What ends up ultimately being the 
possibly being purely perception, though, because Rudy destroyed himself all day, every day, to get no praise, no thanks, eventually gets to dress for a game. At right. one play, he was the luckiest guy on the planet. Right. After he destroyed himself for right. that one play, he right. was the luckiest person on the planet right. by his perception. By his perception. Well, the rest of us would never bother with all that right. one play. Right. That's, the trade-off seems unbalanced to us, but to him... He was the luckiest guy there was in that yeah. moment. There's people that live dirt poor their whole life, never have anything, and they feel lucky to have a rich family life. Yeah. That's all they have. Their lifelong dream is to have close-knit family and feel that bond. That's lucky to them yeah. compared to other people who might be rich but don't even see their kid or what have you. Luck is everyone's very specific perception. What you're touching on now is actually closer to values. Rudy valued Notre Dame. He valued that glory and that gold helmet and playing in that game. That was his value. Some people value, again, family relationships. Some people value power and money. And some people value spirituality and faith and all those things. And, yeah, we, we do things that cost us to, to get the things that we value. So, yeah, absolutely. Any other questions? Yes. How does the idea of, when we look at comparison, I guess, and luck, and, and say, if, if you don't feel like a particularly lucky person in the context for which you find your life, mm -hmm. but then if you look at the wider picture and you say, you know, I'm really lucky because I don't live in a hut on the side of the garbage dump in India. Yep. Yep. Um, I'm really lucky I have running water. I'm really lucky that I can, you know, do all of the amazing things that society affords us to be able to do. Called comparing up or comparing down. We can always, you know, typically when we compare, we always compare up. These people have this more than I have or are better in some way, and therefore I see myself as less. We can do the exact opposite and go, look at all the things I do have, because there's so many other people who don't have everything that I have, and it changes our perception of our experience, but our experience has stayed perfectly the same. It is, it is absolutely a perception and a, um, a choice of how you compare up or compare down. Any other questions? Any other pushback? Yes? Yes. And so it seems to me like one of the seminal issues here is, you know, to raise your children so that they are reinforced for initiative to get out and try stuff. Yes. And they climb up the leg of a chair and get up there instead of swatting them off and say, well, look what you did. You know? yep. And I think that sets people up to be successful. I can figure this out. I can do this. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, Again, Richard Branson, Virgin Airlines, billionaire in Britain, all those things. His biography, the story is that his parents, when he was four, dropped him off a mile from the house and said, find your way home. You get arrested for that nowadays, by the way. Don't do that. That's not a good parenting technique, okay? But in his little community, in his little village where he grew up, they were able to do that and he started building that resilience from very, very, very little, very young. And... You just realize I'm, I don't have much to be afraid of because I've already failed so many times when I was three or four years old, and it's just no big deal. Just, it doesn't matter. I can, I can survive this. 
which is if we wanted to have a whole parenting night, we could talk about the benefits of um, giving your children lots of opportunities and instead of stopping them from bad behavior, shaping their bad behavior, going, man, look at this. You, you just set a, a fire in the middle of the living room floor. Man, it was an awesome fire. You had that thing built so well, the sticks were lined up just right. In fact, it lighted right away. Well done. You're excellent at that. What we got to do is change the context. Let's bring that outside into the fire pit, okay? That would be a better place to use your skills. But you're fantastic. But as parents, what do we do? Oh, my gosh. You're, you're lighting a fire in the middle of the living room just is going to cost me six, $600 to replace the, the floor, the, the carpet in the living room. Dang it, rotten little kid. And we learn, oh, I shouldn't really try because they get yelled at. That's graduate level parenting. That's hard for any parent, okay? That's really, really tough. But... I heard the story, yeah, heard the story of a father who brings home a big tablet of paper for his three-year-old daughter because he knows she loves to draw, brings home brand new crayons, the big 64 box with the pencil sharpener in the back, you know. Here you go, kiddo, have a great time. Puts her in the, puts her in the dining room, and she's just beaming. She's just ecstatic. And he goes and goes to work for an hour and a half in another part of the house, and after about an hour and a half, she comes and says, Daddy, Daddy, I want you to see, I want you to see the beautiful picture I drew for you. And so goes into the dining room, and on the brand newly painted wall is this beautiful picture drawn on the wall. And the dad goes, I bought you all this paper. I mean, why in the world didn't you use this paper? And kind of gets a little madder, gets a little you know, intense with her. And she gets that little lip going and the little tear dripping down the cheek. And she goes, Daddy. And she shows him, I used up all the paper. And so commonsensical for a three-year-old is, let's just move to the next blank piece of, of whatever I can find. There's no ill intent. There's zero ill intent at all. It's not a failure. It's not a mistake. It's just lack of experience with the world. She's three. And so this dad goes, look at this beautiful picture. Look at it. And invites friends over and leaves it up there for a couple months and shows everyone who comes into the house. And it's a beautiful house. Look at the picture my daughter drew. What does she learn in that moment? What does she learn about her value and her worth and her talent and her skill? Yeah. But again, that's the gift a parent gets to offer a child. And unfortunately, I know that that's not the experience everyone in the room has had. Some of you might have. Some of you might have been very fortunate. There's a good chance that that might not have been your experience growing up. <sighs> Fixed versus growth mindset. Look at this. I have handouts. So let's see, just take some and pass them down. Take some. Kiddo, do you want to go on the other end of the other end of there and just gather up the extras? I'll do some extra. You got a couple of extra people. 
Thank you. There's a pile for you guys. There's a pile for you guys. Here's some for you. Kayla, how are you today? Nice to see you. There you go. There's some for you. If you guys run out or didn't get enough, let me know and I'll get you some more. Here's some for here. Just pass them on down. My daughter on the other end will make sure you guys get some. This is actually a fantastic, fantastic TED Talk um, by Eduardo someone or other. Um, and it talks about fixed versus growth mindset and how you approach um, a failure, how you approach mistakes, how you approach learning, all those kinds of things. So we're going to go through this. You got it in front of you, but we're going to kind of break it down. A person who has a fixed mindset, their brain activity, it actually lights up the most. Their brain becomes most active when they receive feedback on their performance, like getting a grade or a score. Those are the kids who are going, I got to get all A's, I got to get all A's. That's what I want to get. I can't wait. I want to get, I want to get a really good grade, and that's why they are studying so hard is because they want the reward versus a growth mindset is their brain becomes most active when they receive information about what they can do better next time. Yeah, you did great here, but they actually look at what can I do better? They are curious. They're hungry. They want to say, I want the next time to get better. This is that concept of not being successful, but gaining mastery. I want to do it good. I want to be successful, but I want to be successful in a way where I can repeat it and do it over and over and over again. That's mastery. So, growth versus fixed mindset. Their emotional focus, a person with a fixed mindset, they worry about how they look. Do I look smart? Or even more appropriately, do I look stupid? Oh man, do I look stupid? I don't want to look stupid. That would be the worst thing. I hope people see me as smart. Versus a growth mindset is they focus most on learning. They go, how can I learn? What can I get, what can I get different in this? When it comes to attitude about effort, a person with a fixed mindset says effort is for the incapable. I should already know how to do something. They believe that they should already be good at it or they shouldn't put themselves out there until they are good at it. And so if you have to try, you must not be good enough. Imagine that. Versus someone with a growth mindset says... Effort makes me smarter. I'm willing to try, and I'm willing to be a newbie. This is, this right here is my story. I always put this pressure on me that I should, I should just know how to do something. I should know how to do it right away. I never really gave myself to be, gave myself permission to stumble and, and be a newbie and just not be good at something. That's hard. That, this is tough hate being a newbie. And then their attitude about setbacks, they conclude that they are incapable. As soon as they hit a problem, as soon as they hit a roadblock, they say, this proves I must not be very good. And to protect their ego, they become disinterested or they withdraw from situations. Versus someone with a growth mindset says, I understand that setbacks are just part of the growth process and they find a way around it. They are open to new ideas and new concepts. Very different mindset. Very different mindset. The Navy SEALs, 
a vast majority, there's a massive dropout rate if you're trying to become a SEAL, by the way. It's tough. It's tough. When I was being a SEAL, <laughs> in another life, um, no. Most people don't quit in the midst of the demanding or stressful exercises. You see those guys? They got these logs and they have to put them up on their head and they got to run like 20 miles down a beach in the rain underwater. It's just crazy what they got to do. Um, I don't get it. Most guys don't quit in those moments. Do you know when they quit? They've done lots and lots of studies around this. They quit in anticipation of the difficult conditions to come. They always quit at lunchtime. Isn't that strange? They know something hard's coming up, and so in, in anticipation of the difficult condition, they say, I don't think I can do it. We rarely, if ever, actually quit in the midst of hard times. I got fired. I wouldn't choose to be fired, but I survived it. It didn't kill me. I did get another job. You might be getting fired. You might not know it. It might happen tomorrow. I hope it doesn't. But if it does, you will get another job. You don't have to anticipate a bad story. You can just go, this, this is a crappy story right now. I'm going to sit in it, but it's going to change. It's going to get better. If you have an anticipation of the difficult conditions to come, that's when you tend to bail out. Water polo players and wrestlers are the ones who actually made it through the, the most in the Navy SEAL program. And actually, water polo players and wrestlers who were also chess players were three times more likely to last the training. Isn't that strange? Why? Anyone guess why chess has such an important thing to do with seals? Patience? No, but thank you for playing. Chess players are always thinking two or three moves ahead. They are not concerned with the current predicament. They just don't get, do we need some more? They, they are thinking ahead, and so they go, this is hard right now, or this isn't where I want to be, but I'm, I'm moving my way to get to somewhere else. And so they already have that mindset of, what do you mean, double-edged sword? Well, you could be thinking two or three moves ahead and suddenly envisioning how much more difficult yet it's going to be in the midst of your failure. Yeah. No. Dive into my depression here. Please push. <laughs> Please push really back. Develop, you know? yeah. I just don't want to fail again. Yeah. You know? And so you are already convinced you're going to fail again. Right. Because that's all I've seen. So that's what I'm assuming will occur again. Correct. Right. I've got good news and bad news okay. for you. What would you like first? I am the best The good news is your thinking your logic tells me you're incredibly healthy because you are going to fail again. Yeah. It's guaranteed. Right. It's guaranteed. The bad news is you're going to fail again. It's guaranteed. Do you think it is going to hold you down forever? Now it's about a cost. Now it's about how much is it going to cost you? And you're right. Anticipating failure 
How do I want to put this? Um, anticipating failure can be a good thing because now you, are, you can prepare yourself. You don't go in that surprise factor isn't there, which is actually why we try to predict ahead for bad situations because we hate surprises. Bad sucks. Bad surprises suck even worse because we can't prepare for it. It's like, dang it. Um, but if you can get into the mindset that says that's actually how life works, that's normal, then when it does happen, you can go, okay, here's just the next wave. This is just the next season, and it's not actually a surprise. And it's not easy, okay? It's a lot easier talking up here and clicking PowerPoints. I understand personal story has more to play into it, so I'm not minimizing it all, okay? But we have a profound capacity to endure and heal, okay? Yes? I have a question. So with the fixed mindset and the growth mindset, like at the end of growth mindset, it says they always find their way around it, like they come up with a different... Yeah. Yeah. end up finding their way around it, is the, like, is the mode just different, or do people with fixed mindsets just literally get totally stagnantly stuck and aren't able to move past it at all? I don't think they get totally stagnantly stuck, but I think their process of getting around it is much harder because they keep trying the same thing over and over, or they lack the, the range of options because they tend to just have a little bit more narrow focus. Um, again, for a really lame platitude, but if you only have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Um, a really good carpenter really only needs six tools. With those six tools, they can build unbelievable things. I mean, just a good hammer, a good saw, a good tape measure, a good pencil, good speed square, and, you know, maybe a good chisel. And that's about all. For woodworkers in here, Norm Abrams, anyone know the name Norm Abrams? I want his workshop. He has a tool for everything. He's got this little thing for making um, mortise and tendon joints, and, and it, it cuts a square hole. And it's like, really? But it's a job that does, the tool that does one job, and then it has to sit and collect dust until you need that other job. I don't want to be a Norm Abrams. I want to be the old school carpenter who has, again, he has those really weathered but really worn in tools that just, they work good, and he can. In fact, I worked for a short time in construction, and there was this old guy who was a, who was a framer, and I swear to God, he, he, he'd look up at this rafter, and he'd look at these two beams, and he'd go, yep, that's 4-7. Four, four, can you cut me a board that's 4-7? Cut him, and he'd go, and it would fit perfectly and just blow that thing in there and move on. It is just, it's, it's fantastic. Has, you develop a skill set with just a smaller set of tools and you can do all sorts of stuff with it. So, but that's distracting. Studly tool chest, by the way, other carpenters, anyone, who's, anyone know what the studly tool chest is? I'll show it to you later. It's just a work of art. Man, it's beautiful. Question, somewhere. I don't really know how this fits in, but, you know, as you're talking, and I know that you're, you're trying to give us, you know, skill sets and all this, but the fact is, we don't live in a world of love. 
And failure is very costly. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's like I'm, I'm not really sure where that fits in, but it's, it's one thing. I'm just thinking the fact that it's one thing to learn this. It's a totally other thing to live it. Why? Why is it? Because a this world does not, because this is not a place of love. This is a place where failure is very costly, and you're judged by your failures. Yeah. You're actually, you're actually defined by your failures. Which is why it takes profound, profound courage to do life differently. Just because the world is exactly how you described, I, I won't, I that's, can't argue that. You know, that's good. I mean, I understand that, and I'm not, but, okay, profound courage. But what are you working for? Yourself? Yeah. I have an answer. Would you like to hear what it is? This world is not loving. It does judge us by our failures. It does expect performance. It does demand approval, all those things. And yet, a while back, there was a guy who showed up who said, let me show you a different way of doing things so that when someone curses you, I am going to respond not in kind. I'm not going to respond the way the rest of the world responds. I'm going to respond the exact opposite. And I'm actually going to love on him more because, because it's necessary, because it's good. In fact, I'm going to do that so much, I already know that these people are going to kill me. And I'm still going to be able to say, in the midst of this experience, forgive them for they know not what they do. And he calls us to say, if you want to try living that way, it actually works better. I have a, just an AP News app on my phone, and so every 20 minutes the little thing comes up just the latest news flashes, and right now, most of them are about the Middle East, okay, Gaza and Israel and all these other things, and so can you imagine what it would look like if one side, pick a side, launches a missile over the wall, and it, and it destroys houses and homes and even people's lives, and that country responds by flying over that country that launched the missiles and drops blankets and sandwiches. What do you think the world would say? The world might say they're stupid, but if they continue to do it, and they say, yes, you are hurting us, but we will not respond in kind. We just won't do it. We will bear, we will bear your mistreatment because you are valuable and worthwhile, and we're not going to respond in kind. How, if it were me, I'm going, if I had to pick a side, I know what side I'm going to pick. And how, how, how long could the people stay angry 
and continued lobbing missiles over. Those people have to be willing to be annihilated right, because they very, they well, very may be. well may be in that situation. You're right. Which now you ask the other question, why do we do that? How do we do, we do that just because of our own humanity? And I would say our own humanity is never enough. It will never, ever provide enough motivation to do something like that. There has to be a supernatural motivation. There has to be, there has to be an actual literal belief that this world isn't all there is. Because if that's true, I'm going to defend this world any way I can. And that means punching back and fighting back and gritting teeth and everything else because i got to hold on to what I have. But when you recognize this world isn't all there is, this world is temporary, and my real world, C.S. Lewis calls this the Shadowlands, okay? This is the real world over here. If this is what I'm looking, on, looking at, then I absolutely might get annihilated. I absolutely might get annihilated. But I never will be annihilated. Because this is, this is my real world. This is what provides the motivation for the living in ways that the rest of the world says you are crazy to live. And by the way, you will be called crazy to live this way. Because it doesn't make sense. It's so, so counterintuitive. It's so counterintuitive to say, you hurt me, and I'm going to love you more. Yeah. Hold on a second. Hold on a second. Appreciate you coming. Hold on. I got more on this, but this is probably more important in the moment. What would marriages look like? Okay? Let me run two theories for you. Most marriages, most of the world says, you need to make sure that you're pretty compatible with the person you're going to marry. You need to make sure you spend enough time with them. You need to make sure that they're going to fulfill you and fill you up, and that you can fulfill them up as well, and that, that this person is going to make you happy, and that you can live for a long time with this person. That is kind of the general overall approach to marriage and relationships in this world nowadays. What if we turn that model 180 degrees around? What if... What if you find a person and say, I know you are flawed. I know you are broken. I know that you come with a story and baggage. I call it a bag of crazy. Okay? I know that you have a bag of crazy. And I am willing, I'm willing to learn about your bag of crazy. In fact, I'm going to ask that you expose yourself to me more than you expose yourself to anybody else on this planet. And when you trust me with that, it is now my privilege, it is now my honor to help redeem your woundedness. You're already broken. You're already messed up. I already know that. But I get to now come into your life and help you become a better human being so that after 5, 10, 20, 50 years, 
this person is now a better human being, is a better human being leaving this earth than they were when they first get married. And when you do that with two people, so that now I'm doing this to my wife, my spouse, and she goes, Paul, you have your own bag of crazy, big bag of crazy. You bring your own woundedness, and I will help you become a better human being. I will help you become whole and holy so that when you leave this planet, you are a better human being. Now, we spend years and years filling up the other person. And so the cups get more and more and more full. And so that we have an entire lifetime together that is sweet. Not perfect. It is not perfect. It is not without stress and trouble. And in fact... In fact, it will cost me. It will cost me to be married to a flawed human being. Because when she gets angry, when she messes up, when she gets scared, when she gets anxious, when she gets all these things, it's going to affect me. It's going to affect my choices. And so I have to willingly, gladly say, I will bear those burdens. I will go into the grave used up. I will go into the grave used up because I gave everything I can to help you become a better human being. And she will do the same. Doesn't that sound like a great way to spend a relationship? But it is completely and totally counterintuitive to what the world says. <laughs> no, 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 no. You can't argue. This is right. I appreciate your utopia. However, that works great and fine in a marriage when there's a level of it does not work great and fine in a dating world. Would you agree? Yes. We got a lot of head nodding here. She said that works great in the utopian that I have in my little head. <laughs> I was much nicer. Uh-huh. Um, but that does not work in the dating world. Would you agree? Boy, we have a I just opened up a can of worms at 8:37. Sorry guys. <laughs> Oh, man. We could continue this on. What's your question? That's not a question. It's a comment. It's a comment. Yeah. There's a place for safety. There, I think there's a place where, place where you say the price of trying and failing in this particular way is too expensive. Or um, this, you know... Um, or, or, or this could hurt me or hurt the people that I am responsible to provide for or protect too much. Like yes. Abuse. Yes. Like that recipe is a recipe for abuse. This model only works. I want to make sure you heard me real clearly. This model works when it is reciprocal. You do this model one way, that is the recipe for abuse. Because now you have a person giving and a person taking. That is not a, you will never, ever have a healthy relationship. That's not what I'm saying. And that means that the would-be giver has, a, has, a, has some difficult things to evaluate and, and, and may have to say, I will not give as much in these particular situations. Maybe. Again, if it's unhealthy. Wow, I, I recognize I opened up this. Let's just a couple more questions, and I'm going to be very intentional and leave you guys in this kind of uneasy state tonight. Okay. 
Comment. Of dating because we, I think we absolutely can speak into that like we would a marriage because that is, we control that. We okay. haven't committed fully. Yep. If that is our intent and as where we're going and where we're moving as we date, we should be that intentional and set up those conversations when we date. Thank you. And then it gets, and then that gets played out. Whatever you expect and whatever you allow, I guess. Yep. Whatever foundation you build, whatever you set as your foundation is what will continue. Yes. Actually, the dating world, I actually have a lot more hope for it. We could talk again. I should bring these topics up earlier in the evening so we can just expand them out more. Maybe we should do that next time. Um, C.S. Lewis real clearly say, said, if you want to have freedom in this life, you have to give up freedom. You have to give up the freedom to choose, and that opens yourself up to when you commit here, you now have the freedom to experience love. And it's just some really great writing around all of this stuff that we could just spend a lot of time taking apart and finding out. Here's, here's why I say what I say. Um, and it's based upon um, my professional work. It's based upon my um, personal studies, based on lots of stuff. But um, I have noticed a very interesting trend in my counseling practice and in my interaction with other people in other places in my life. And there is a hunger. There is a thirst, especially within the church community. I have women I sit with day in and day out who go, why aren't there any men out there who are willing to step up and actually pursue women? Why are they do this whole little incommittal thing and, and scared to just put themselves out there? Okay? There is, there's just a starvation for men who will be men. And then there are, I hear the men's side of it, which is, how come I can't find these women who are, who are willing to care for themselves and to say, I am valuable and I'm worthwhile? And so it's like these people are going in different directions, but it's like, I, I should start a dating service. I could probably double my income. You, you, that, there we go. See, you guys can just match up really good. I could, yeah, that's a whole new thing I should consider. Um, just don't call it failure. <laughs> don't call it failure, 301. Yeah, that might be a bad marketing strategy. Um, all of this to say is, if I were to pick my next topic, this would be it. The, the, I actually already have the title for it. It's, it's check yes or no. It's this whole little thing about, you know, third grade, little, you know, pass a note. I'll like you if you like me. Check yes or no kind of thing. Please. Pardon me. And again, this also, yeah, hold on. Yeah, I'm going to put this out there. I'm going to throw you under the bus. I have a daughter who is of um, prime dating age. You better believe I'm thinking about this as a father. You better believe I'm thinking about this as a father. And who's the guy who's going to be worthy to guard my daughter's heart? I've already got a very long questionnaire that he's going to fill out. We're going to spend a lot of time together. A lot of time. Because her heart is precious to me. It's valuable to me. And I'm not just going to let some other guy come in and not treat it as well as I want it treated. 
That being said, she still gets to make her own choices. I don't get to demand anything of her, but I ask. I ask a lot. Knowing full well, she's going to make mistakes. Okay. Well, that went weird. Um, <laughs> thanks for coming. Nice to see you. Thanks for listening to this podcast. If you'd like more information, please visit paulelmore.com.